Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help anybody out there that's thinking of starting a business. Equally, if you've started a business and are struggling, maybe you need a little bit of inspiration and knowledge. And we hope by interviewing some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and change makers, that you'll get the knowledge you need to become the person you want and turn your business into that dream company. I personally have started 17 companies from scratch and have invested in over 65 startups. When I sat down and analyzed how I did it, I discovered a secret. It was all luck. I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, without luck, it ain't gonna work. Each week, I will discuss with my guests this theory and see if luck is a skill as I feel it is. I hope you enjoy our episode this week. Today, my guest is Sojin Lee, founder of Toshi. She'll be sharing her story with us today. Sojin, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Well, maybe you could kindly start off by first telling our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my entire career has definitely been focused on the luxury fashion market. I worked uh, for large brands such as Chanel and Boutique Veneta and then was lucky enough uh, to be involved in starting netaporte.com here in London as a founding member and uh, really stayed within the space, left after uh, seven and a half years and moved on again into the entrepreneurial space, uh, really looking at the evolution of where retail was going. And that included starting a company with Simon Fuller, who is the, the founder of the Spice Girls and American Idol. Uh, and together we created um, a, a company called Fashion Air, which was really about the integration of content and commerce. Uh, and then, you know, as things go, we did that during the recession, so uh, we shuttered the company and then stayed really in the entrepreneurial space, moved on to other consultancies, investments of my own, uh, advisory board uh, levels, and then eventually three years ago uh, found another, what I thought was a need in the retail space, which is Toshi, which is on-demand home services for fashion. Wow, what a CV. Quite, quite the experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I always like to start off the podcast by just defining with our guests what they consider success to be. What, what do you think success is? I, I, I still find that hard to answer because I don't think there's a definitive answer. There's no uh, des- like there's no end, right? There's no destination. It's not a finale or an end of the chapter. Uh, I found that the way that I measured success or viewed success really depended on where I was in the stage of my evolution, uh, you know, whether that was work or personal. So I think when I was younger, it was definitely measured by the validation that you uh, receive from your bosses, right? So when you're in your sort of early 20s, it was the promotions you received, the feedback that you received. Uh, and definitely, you know, the feedback from your peers, but more importantly, your boss. Uh, and then when I moved more into the entrepreneurial space, the success came from 
uh, I guess, communicating better the vision of what you're trying to achieve and to understand if people understand that vision. And if you're actually tapping into a need or a desire or an enthusiasm or an emotion uh, from the end consumer. So that was really important, the end customer that uh, depends on that. And then I think for me on a personal level throughout that, it was just the satisfaction of whether I thought as an individual, I was uh, performing to my uh, optimal, if I was contributing, if I was adding value. Uh, and now that I've been doing this for so long, and this is sort of my fourth startup, uh, I measure success very differently. Uh, I measure it more around community and the interpersonal relationships I have with teams and certainly the teams in my own company. I think those relationships are very important. And I think there was also an evolution of how um, companies engage with their employees. So in the past, uh, there wasn't a so much as a personal touch. It was more about you know functionality and deliverables and KPIs. And uh, now I find that there is a need for so much more uh, human connection. And if you can inspire your team uh, and uh, treat each other as family, because you spend so much time with them, you trust them so much, they're part of the journey that you're going on. So my success is also very much measured in the happiness that I have of the people that I surround myself with. Uh, and also if I'm having fun, uh, and that's, that's also different uh, to what it was before as well. That's fascinating. And I think the evolution point you make is something for our young audience to think about, because I do think over time um, your your needs change, right? So I, I agree. I like I like the feedback. I, I agree. When I, when I was also younger in my in my early career, you definitely want to have feedback that you're doing a good job and reassurance. But as you develop your, I guess, self confidence uh, later on, that yeah. that community piece kicks in. It's it's fascinating. Looking back at your your career history, um, I'm going to pronounce this brand name wrong, but I know it. It's Batika Venente. Is that right? Ortega Vanita. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Thank you. There you go, audience. That's how you pronounce it properly. Uh, that, 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 yeah. well, that was the early, you know, that's your first job, right? No, so actually my first job out of university was uh, working at DLJ, which was, uh, you know, Donald Luskin and Genra um, down in uh, 140 Broadway. So I was in banking for the first year out of university uh, as a proper job. Whereas even prior to that, uh, after university, I stayed uh, in Boston and I took a job uh, as a night manager at the Buckminster Hotel and a day job at the Hilton, Back Bay Hilton. Very glamorous. As a concierge. Stop showing off. Very glamorous. Uh, uh, no, really, right? Uh, so I did that for a year to save money uh, to be able to then uh, pursue wherever I wanted to go next. So, you know, it, it's a very long story, but fundamentally I was financially independent literally at the age of 21. So that point I needed to just save myself some money. And then a massive earthquake happened in Los Angeles, which is where I went to high school. And my best friend at the time said, I'm moving to New York because I don't want to stay in LA. Uh, so meet me there. So I saved money for a year and then I joined her there and we lived five of us in a one bedroom flat in Alphabet City and hence the journey began uh, of, you know, finding your place in the world, 
finding your confidence, your purpose, um, yeah, and, and and the path that you wanted to set for yourself. It was amazing. I had really, when I look back on it, it was I had the best time. Quite a um, interesting beginning. And, and do you think those early jobs, <laughs> those early experiences, they they crafted what you wanted to become later, what you wanted to do later? How, how did they affect you? I don't think they crafted what I wanted to become. I had no idea what I wanted to become, but what it crafted was I knew that I could do whatever I set my mind to do. And that hard work and hard ethic uh, and rolling your sleeves up and really participating in what you were doing and giving it your all was what I discovered about myself. And, you know, it's not philosophical in the sense that I had a plan. Part of it is pure survival, right? So you're put into these situations where you don't even know you're doing what you're doing at that age. You just know you have to pay your bills and you've got to put food on the table. So those moments, you know, and, and that my moment was, you know, uh, it was still a, a good moment, right? But um, those moments really will, you know, ask the question of yourself, which is what are you going to do about this? Are you going to step up and do something about it? Or are you going to sit back and, um, you know, not take responsibility? So I think working two really difficult jobs in the, in the, the hospitality space is a very difficult space. It's very demanding. The hours are not favorable. The guests are high maintenance. Uh, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. So, you know, I think for me being in that environment for a year, working two jobs at very low price, you know, at very low pay, uh, was almost sort of like a smack in the head to say, welcome to the real world and uh, make a decision of which path you want to go and who are you going to be in this journey. So, you know, and I laugh about this, I mean, because I know you've been in, you know, come from Asia as well, but there is a cultural element to this I didn't realize was going to rear its head. Um, so being raised, you know, in Europe and America, even though I was born in Asia and Korea, I left at a very young age. So I found myself in situations where I thought, oh, I've become completely westernized. But in actuality, there are moments where I realize now, as I get older, that there is a very Im kind of embedded DNA uh, of the cultural aspects that show up, which is, you know, a lot of respect for people in authoritative positions, um, you know, never saying no, uh, going the extra mile, um, that hard, you know, sort of work ethic that is drilled into us. The, you know, and I laugh about it, but it's the, where's the A plus and not the A minus, right? That is that kind of mentality. So I think that definitely helped me in making that decision when it came down to it to say, who am I going to be and how am I going to approach it? Um, yeah, so I decided to do it and really go for it. So I took two jobs and saved money so that I could then um, decide where I was going to go next and, and what I was going to do next. And that led me to New York. There's so much that you're saying here that I want to unpack for the audience to, to grasp, you know, the cultural, the cultural piece you're talking about there. I think the, the um, let's call it the, the early day um, grounding that you're talking about that I think so many people sometimes try to skip. It's, it, this is one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because I think like pr platforms like LinkedIn, we, we all end up, and I, I do the same, have listed our achievements and w what we've done in the last you know, 10 years, but we don't necessarily want to or have the time to explain how we got there. You know, and, and listening to your story, you know, you, you've, you've, you've basically 
done the night shift at a hotel, you know, and I've done that myself, by the way. So I know exactly just how hard that can be equally, you know, working, working in a hotel frontline, you learn what customers want and they want it now. And you can't, there's no, there's no escaping behind a computer terminal. If you're a concierge, for example, you know, you've got to be top notch, no matter what star rating hotel you're working for and, and deliver. And, And that, that instant service really teaches you stuff that university can't. And, and so, yeah. if, you know, if you can put yourself through that pace and then the cultural thing you're talking about there is fascinating. So I, I just want to step back. You, you, you go to, you leave uh, LA, right? C- California, right? Yeah. And you go to New York, very different, different, different environments completely. You, you're now, yeah, you're now in a house with five, four friends and you're working in the finance business, right? Yes. Okay. What happens next? <laughs> so I last a year. Uh, because I decided that I was not cut out for the finance uh, world. Um, there wasn't a, an area that interested me. At the time, I was in asset back management. It just didn't pique my interest, but I did have some analytical skills. So we lived as a group in this tiny one-bedroom flat. I stayed one year, enough to, again, save more money, and then my best friend and I moved to our own apartment in Hell's Kitchen, uh, which was, again, sort of a big studio space. And we lived hand-to-mouth that way for, yeah, about a year. Uh, And then I decided to take my skill set and take it to a sector that I understood. So in Korea, my family actually produced and manufacture uh, garments. And they sell them in... um, Namdaemun Shijang, which is a wholesale market. Uh, it's very famous in Korea. It starts opening at, you know, 2 a.m. and it closes at 7 a.m. So they are, you know, hardcore garmento people. And whenever I would go home during the summer, I would go and work in the market uh, because then I would earn money for my day's work and I'd just go run around shopping and spending it uh, in this wholesale market. So going into the fashion space made sense to me because I understood that and I enjoyed the customer service aspect of it and then took my skills that I got from the hotel industry and then I had some analytical um, abilities and so I thought I'll apply it to a sector that I enjoy. So then I went and took a job uh, as an assistant uh, at Chanel in Fragrance and Beauty in New York. So from Chanel you went there, you you, you I, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, that the, the working at Chanel sounds like it would be very different from, from working with your family at the market uh, in Korea. That, that sounds like, yeah. although both fashion, I guess, by labels, um, having been to, to the market you're talking about, it's, it's, it's yeah. intense. And, you know, there's, there's, there's copy brands there. There's real brands there. It's, it's totally different world, though, right? I mean, it's working at it's Chanel a must totally be... different world. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally fashion, world. I mean, you know, Oh my God. And, you know, coming to Chanel and working there was such a big deal for me. Right. So it's, you're in, in, you know, category, one of the best brands in the world with the heritage, you know, uh, with everything that comes with it, the positioning, the glamour. So to have a job in a institution, you know, such a loved and respected uh, brand like that was a really big deal. You felt like you were, uh, you'd made it in some ways. My God, I got a job at Chanel. It was quite a big deal for, for me at the time. So, um, and it's, it's fantastic. So I, I started off literally uh, as the assistant to the, the regional sales director. Um, 
So he was responsible for all of the the wholesale accounts and the retail accounts at the at the regional level in the U.S. And eventually, really moved my skill set into analytics. So they started throwing me into different projects, and eventually, it was working across. Um, I think localization of markets. So I really believed at the time that you know we had to understand what local consumer demand was, so that we could actually produce. Uh, products, but also come up with the way that we were going to sell differently and what we were going to sell to each market. Uh, you know, because everybody has different, there are trends in, and everybody has a different need. So that was the part that I really, really enjoyed. And so the more I did that and the more uh, I had an affinity for it, they eventually moved me and promoted me over to the fashion division, uh, which is a different building of Chanel. And then I worked there uh, as an analyst, which was a kind of first behind the scenes job that they created specifically. And that was me uh, sitting behind the lines with my boss in accessories, analyzing things like the hardware, you know, that was put on the handbags, um, the, the materials that were used on shoes, again, to understand what that progression could be. And in addition, uh, working uh, around uh, open to buys. And that basically means that when, a new collection would come out, the account executives would sell to the Neiman Marcuses, the Saks Avenues of the world, and I would be the person behind the scenes running the analytics to understand what we were selling, how we were selling it, uh, and then projecting the budgets across that. So it, it nicely sort of allowed me to extend my capabilities across uh, the different divisions and departments uh, in the company, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So, I mean, I feel like when you talk about these things, it, fe- it feels very, um, I mean, these days I feel data is such a big part of everyone's business, understanding data. It, when I hear you talk about this though, back in the early part of your career, this feels like it was kind of ahead of its time or was it very common in the fashion business, what you're talking about? No, I think absolutely there were uh, plenty of different and much more capable and smarter people, you know, obviously running business analysis roles, uh, but probably more across uh, things to do with finance. Uh, but, you know, these roles were absolutely common because if you're also a commercial director, then your capabilities are to look at the, the general sales. But I will say where, where it was probably slightly different. Uh, was, yeah, I can't keep for those companies in those early days, but I did think it was pretty cool that they were willing to hire me specifically to do that mm. uh, in in New York. We're uh, you know, facing people in the headquarters in Paris who are looking at those analytics as well. So, for instance, when you talk about the data set, I was part of the, the, the teams that would be sent out to Canada because at the time uh, Chanel had uh, bought into you know, what was hardware and software at the time, which was actually a, a, um, a medical company that had hardware and software that looked at medical sales. And then we took that and geared it towards fashion products. So I was going to Canada to be taught, you know, how to work this um, big piece of hardware and data software because at the time we didn't have anything. So we were sort of, you know, making things up uh, as we go. And I remember when we all got, you know, <laughs> We all got set up for uh, emails. Everybody, everybody thought it was a big deal as well. Now I'm really giving my age away. Yeah. Uh, well, no, you're not. You're not. You're not. Uh, but that, that's 1997. Then is it? This is. This is. 
oh my god now you're really testing me yes but must be 96 something yeah first time i used email was 97 so you know that year the handover year in hong kong that was the year hong kong Uh, got handed back to the british which feels like yesterday but giving away my age now Um, so 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 that's fascinating what happened next i'm 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 intrigued to see how you ended up being a founding member of netaporte and how that all played out yeah, so, you know, it, it was the rise of already, you know, Silicon Valley and the bubble, so to speak, uh, in, the, in the U.S. And I reached a point in my career at Chanel where, you know, it was amazing. I would have loved to have stayed, but, you know, I am definitely somebody who is curious and always wants to see what else is on the other side. You know, I, I enjoy nothing more than going somewhere and meeting different people from different, you know, jobs, different, you know, geographies. I want to know what people do. How do you do that? I think it's fascinating. So, um, and because of that curiosity that I've always had, I thought, okay, I need to move on and and have a different kind of experience. So I was hired as the commercial director by uh, the Molteto family, which at the time were the owners of Bottega Veneta before they sold to Gucci Group. So they hired me and it was while I was at um, Bottega that really the, the you know onslaught of e-commerce came to be so as a part of my job it was to open up uh, e-commerce deals so I was working with a few of the large guys that don't exist anymore but at the time you had like e-luxury, luxury finder, lux, you know lux look you had so many of these guys in America because it really was the days of like you know pets.com and um so we opened that up, uh, and that, that for me was a no-brainer. It was, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't the emotional aspect. It was the supply chain and distribution aspect of it that I thought was, you know, key and huge. So that's what really excited me was the, the a potential revenue of that, what it could expose you to. Um, so, you know, that's where I was. And then uh, I was lucky enough that uh, at the time uh, – the founders of Net-a-Porte, uh had started to go up to brands to let them know that they were in the process of creating this company, uh, that they were going to do the first luxury e-commerce uh, website in based out of London, multi-brand retail. So I was uh, lucky enough to meet Natalie Massenet uh, as a you know as a as a customer to say I'd like to be able to sell Bottega Veneta uh, on uh, on Netaporte.com. And then uh, while we were going through that process, um, we were purchased by Gucci Group. And at the time, I did not want to work for a large company. I wanted to have impact and make a difference. Uh, and I believe me, this is absolutely coincidental, but then I also fell in love with my English uh, boyfriend, uh, who is now my husband, and we are here in London together. So I was even more motivated to find my way to Europe, basically. So all purely for, you know, selfish reasons. But uh, so that took me on the trajectory of sending out my CV, connecting with people in the industry. I was uh, very down, far down the process of um, interviewing with Ralph Lauren at the time because they were making headway into Europe using London as their headquarters. And I happened to reach out to... Natalie uh, Massonet as well to say that I was coming into London and that's how it began. And then they uh, interviewed me to say, would you like to join us as our first sort of key executive hire? 
and to me, it was an absolute no brainer. Uh, and I said, yes, absolutely. Cause I had no, you know, at the time I, I certainly, you know, I learned that it's actually entrepreneurs are in their forties, but I actually, at the time I thought that in my twenties, I had no, nothing to lose, everything to gain. Um, because I figured, look, you know, salary is salary, but the opportunity to uh, have equity in a company was the first time for me. I thought that was really interesting. It motivated me to give everything I had to make this company a success, to support the founders in their vision, uh, to be the best employee that I could be, but also because I believed in what we were doing. Uh, also because it was already happening in America. Uh, so I had that sort of as the safety net. And I always knew that if nothing else came out of it, you know, the Chanel's of the world would still be there. And the skills that I would learn from this, not only on a personal level, but, you know, on a professional level, could only be investing in what was the future to come anyway that would give me a leg up. Oh, I hope the listeners are picking up on some of these uh, jewels that you're throwing out. I think um, the the whole uh, big brands will still be there. Well, that's questionable these days, but uh, but I, I I think I think generally that's true. The big names will always be there. Maybe the new generation of big names will always be there. Let's call them Google or Amazon now. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, yeah. the, the, I still think it's an incredible thing. Um, it's easy in hindsight to say it was obvious, but here's a little brand that you know isn't yet known called Netaporte. You know, five people with you in it, uh, and you're leaving the Chanel's and the, and the big brand name. Uh, CV that you've been building up uh, behind to, to join this company that must have felt like slightly a risk at the time it was it was it was terrifying I do remember you know coming to London I you know look again I don't think it's because you know you have some sort of foresight and it's not like I you know I entered this thinking oh I know better and like I said at the time when you're making decisions you're making them based on the now and based on the now, the reality was, you know, even in, in a, a big job at Bottega, the salaries back then weren't huge. You know, I wasn't giving up, you know, a, a 10 you know, digit package, so to speak. So financially, you're thinking, well, I'm living, you know, sort of, you know, with savings that last maybe two, three months at that age, you know, in my 20s. So I was thinking, not losing that much. And then secondly, um, like I said, if it was maybe going to Paris where my French is a bit dodgy <laughs> or Italy where my Italian is really dodgy, <laughs> but coming to London where the language is English, so I'm fluent in English. Uh, I had friends here having come from a university background that had multiple international um, uh, students. And so therefore I was lucky enough to have a lot of friends in, in London. And then also the fact that I had fallen in love with an Englishman. So like I said, there's a, a selfish side to this. Uh, so you're weighing out all of these things at the time. And to me, it was like I'm in my, you know, in my I was 27 years of age at the time. And I'm thinking, I found a great guy. I'm moving to a great city like London where the language is there. Someone's offered me an amazing job in a sector that I firmly believe is going to be the future. Uh, and you know, why not? I have no children. I have no other um, responsibilities. So if anything, the, the jump was also, it's a journey, it's a risk, but it's a journey. So therefore, let's go for it. And I knew that if the relationship didn't work out, I was in a city where I had friends. 
and I had a network and I was independent. And I think having had the background that I did, I knew I would always be able to land on my two feet because I think that's the important thing of entrepreneurs also is what I've learned about myself is I can survive pretty much anything. Um, and it doesn't mean you know everything, right? You have your ups and downs and you're so vulnerable at times and it's so lonely at times. It's, you know, painful, but you do know at the end of the day, there is something deep inside that is like a steel thing that just says you go, you're going to be fine. Uh, you're going to get through this. That took years to get to, but at the time I also saw it in a different way, which was like, this is an adventure and you're going to be fine. So I did it. That's interesting. I, I uh, and as an entrepreneur, I agree with you. It, 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 you feel invincible and at other moments you feel totally alone and like, mm-hmm. You just can't explain the pain of, of being an entrepreneur sometimes. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? I think in a way that pain yeah. makes you stronger because if you can push through that sort of hardship, then somehow um, everything else tastes sweeter or the, the, the victories feel bigger yeah. and, and so on. But I, I just going back to something you said earlier about culture, I just, I just wondered when, you know, ha- having had some experience of uh, Korean families in my in my lifetime, you know, were you checking in with your parents at this point? I'm sure they were very proud when you said you were at Chanel. I'm sure they were like, "Wow, okay, that's great." And then when you said you're going to work for this little no little known company called Nete Porte, was there a discussion to be had? And you know, this English boy is leading you the wrong wrong way, or how how did that play out? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think people were confused, uh, but. Being coming from a very traditional, you know, sort of Korean mother, I think her concern was not so much the job. It was more about moving countries to be with a, a strange man <laughs> she had never met. So, you know, for her, the priority was not is my daughter, you know, striving to be an interesting business individual. It was more where is she in her personal life? Is that typical for Korean family dynamic? Is it, is it, do they not mind so much about the career? Because I, 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 you know, I, I, my, my, my partner's Chinese, so you know, the the career part is very important. You know, are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be, you know, like that? What what you are is is important. Um, and you know, I'm almost like I ended up marrying my 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 then girlfriend, but her parents at the time didn't really care, you know, uh, about me. They cared about her career path in some respects. But is it is it different? Was it just unique to your family? Um, I think it's probably a combination. I. Uh, I think my mother specifically, uh, bless her, you know, uh, she's never worked, right? So she was always, she was raised to uh, have a family. She was raised to take care of her children and to be the best wife that she could be. So I think everything is personal for her because she was raised that way. The way in which she, value is not the word, but the way that she would grade me is, what kind of, you know, female are you? Are you a good mother? Are you a good wife? Are you, are you? That's, I think, the measurement of where she sees it. Um, because she can't necessarily relate to me on the other point. What I can say is, would they have rather that I had ended up a lawyer or a doctor? Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I was never going to do that. So I think if I had ended up a lawyer or a doctor or a chemist or, you know, anything that fell in their sphere of what a career represents, there might have been more pressure to do well. But because I didn't 
choose those vocations, uh, the way that she would uh, grade me was different. Interesting. And what about your father? How did he play a part in all of this? Uh, he's not really in my life, so I can't speak to it a lot. Um, he's, he is in and out of my life, but my father was an entrepreneur. So the irony of all of this to me is, you know, growing up with entrepreneur, uh, when you have Asian parents who are not what I would say the most um, sharing, right? So I was not raised in a household where you have dialogue or conversation. You're raised in, a, in an environment where you're told what to do and how to behave. So, and again, that's just the way that they were raised. Um, and because of those dynamics, there was never, uh, there was never engagement beyond a certain point. Uh, so for him, uh, being an entrepreneur, you would see as a child, somebody going through their ups and downs, right? So, I mean, I'm very open about this stuff. Like one day would be moving into a 10 bedroom house and then all of a sudden, you know, everything was being, you didn't understand what was going on and nothing was being explained to you. So I remember kind of starting grade or 10th grade, I am never going to be what this man is because I just want stability and I want consistency. So I think part of me going down a path of trying to figure out if I could enter the corporate world and have the guarantee of a safety net and a paycheck that someone was giving me on a monthly basis um, lasted. And then, you know, Neta Porte really did me in because that journey was so magnificent, so inspiring that, uh, yeah, I broke all the rules and not ended up exactly where I said I wouldn't be, which is all about risk and, you know, uncertainty. Which begs the question, I, I always wonder, um, is an entrepreneur born or bred? What do you think? Oh. There's something wrong with the sound, folks. Well having a think no, about that there's one. nothing on the sound i mean exactly i'm really pondering because i i i struggle with that question a lot because i ask myself a lot of these questions all, all the time like what am i doing why am i doing this um i would say that i would say that they're born and the reason why i say that they're born is if i really took the time to go back and ask my family questions about myself when I was younger. There are things that they have told me in the past that makes so much sense as to why I became what I became. Uh, and so it, it's, I, it, and the irony is I always say, oh my God, it must be so wonderful to be someone who was born knowing that there was the one thing that they need to do, right? Because it must make life so great to know you're going to be that amazing guitarist or that you know amazing artist but then I think oh but then the burden of that is what's the alternative if you don't do that right so I'm always thinking about all the other uh, mirrors that are that are uh, reflecting back at you but the truth is I didn't see entrepreneurialism as a form right like you would see a guitarist because there's actually something to it that's tangible but I think being an entrepreneur is a vocation of its own kind because it's not made up of, like I say, the end journey. It's made up of the pieces 
that all come together that determined that we have to do this and there's nothing else we could do. And also the irony of all of this is that no matter what we go on to succeed, I always joke every day that tomorrow I'm unemployable. Like who's going to employ me? I I think it's you more like I no, mean, no one could afford you. Today. I think that's what you really mean. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I, but I think you know what I mean. I do right? know what you mean. It's, it's more, it's yeah. more about being in control of your own vision and mission, isn't it? And, when, and, if, yeah. and if someone owns owns the vision and mission and, and they adjust it and it doesn't align with you, you have no control. I think that's a big part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, it's interesting you say born, and I, I think it is fascinating that you, you know, you grow up having this feeling that you don't want to have the same life as, as the one you're experiencing as a child with your parents. But when you get older, it's naturally there and, and risk is part of your DNA. It's also interesting uh, that I, that I, you know, you, you look at entrepreneurship as a discipline because I, I also say the same. And I think, you know, there are people you could argue that were born to be lawyers, <laughs> Yeah. But without training, they're not going to be a lawyer, right? So that's why, you know, I say, I think 10% of the world's unemployed could become entrepreneurs. They just don't know it. You know, they need yeah. they need some training, some guidance, and that's why I have folks like so, you want to inspire people. So can, can I say specifically to that, because I think I'm going to upset the order of your um, amazing podcast, but that specific statement is the piece of the luck thing that I think about all the time, by the way, which is, if you said to me, what's the luck piece? The luck piece is I was born into a family that afforded me the opportunity to become what I became. Because it's luck of the draw, right? I could have been born in the desert. I could have been born cut off to the rest of the world in, you know, in Mongolia. But it's just being able, I'm so grateful to be able to have been born into a situation where I could get an education that I was given opportunity. It, it starts as basic as that for me uh, on so many levels. I think I think it's a it's an interesting insight there for the listeners too. What what I hear when you say that is you were lucky in a way to also be born into a what was as a child seen as dysfunctional family environment because that also taught you to be stronger and 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 innovate and uh, and 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 self discipline in a way, right? It sounds like your father was was busy um, building and 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 rebuilding, and and of course that teaches you a certain resilience that it's not so bad to be poor and it's not so bad to be rich, and so why not do what you love every day, right? Yeah. So I, I, I yeah, I think there's an interesting insight there. I think a lot of people will say and and. and talk to entrepreneurs and you invest you've invested in a lot of startups as well so you, you'll, you'll know what i'm talking about there's a certain type of of founder you know they kind of see the world differently they see opportunity when everyone else is seeing the downside so there's a story of uh, two boys born into a family where their father is a drunk one grows up to be very successful and happy and one grows up to be drunk and when they're asked each of them why are this why are they this way the drunk one says well my father was a drunk and the one that's successful and happy says well my father was a drunk yeah exactly so, yeah. so you, 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 I think there's a positive piece there that you take, like you're saying you were lucky to be born in that environment. But I think for our listeners that were hearing earlier, the struggle that perhaps you had living in that environment where your mother role model wasn't necessarily out there working, 
as a as a, yeah. a, a girl born into you know into their family maybe there, there was a preconception of what you were going to grow up to be a wife a mother not an entrepreneur yet that that entrepreneurial dynamism inside the family created a certain uh, uh dynamism in you right that's led you on to yeah. where you are today so i think it's, it's a really yeah. interesting point i mean and, and, and there's no order to these these podcasts i think you've you touched on luck you mentioned it earlier i was going to pick up on it you mentioned earlier i was i was lucky to meet certain people but do you think you yeah. know there is that random luck what the family you're born into but my, my thing is i think there should be a second definition of luck which is luck that you made happen yourself i feel like you you, you must have made some of these uh, lucky moments happen by being in the right place at the right time yeah i think so and you know i've been it's going to sound weird again but i've been doing a lot of sort of you know, I talk to myself a lot <laughs> so, and I've been doing that. I don't know how long I've been doing it for, but I'm perfectly really, normal. I perfectly like normal. <laughs> and you know, it is it, something that I discuss with my friends. I literally walk around, you know, the block of my, of my square talking to myself, just talking things out. And, um, the first time I started uh, manifesting what I wanted to happen, uh, was when I was uh, actually working at the hotel. So I used to do this. I mean, this is just crazy stuff. I I used to talk to Oprah Winfrey, uh, which is the weird. Like, you know, I can't believe I'm actually saying this. Uh, so I, I would we are not editing this out, by the way. We're not editing yeah, this out. This yeah. is totally oh staying in God. there. <laughs> but go on. So, so what does Oprah Winfrey tell you? No, so I would pretend Oprah Winfrey was uh, interviewing me about my relationship or about how I met my husband or how I became, you know, the person I became. And I would literally, I could hear her asking the questions and I would answer the questions and they were all designed specifically around what I want, what I was trying to manifest. And what I wanted to manifest was the kind of relationship I wanted to be in, the kind of person I wanted to meet. Uh, you know, I totally manifested wanting to leave New York, finding somebody who would give me uh, a visa to move to Europe. I mean, and I think manifestation is not necessarily that there's some like, you know, voodoo thing going on. I think it's a way of your subconscious making its own distinctive decision to say whatever it takes whether you realize it or not you're doing everything you can to focus on making that happen because it becomes almost your target and your obsession mm. so my incentive to leave the state move to europe because why would i all of a sudden meet my husband to be you know and we've now been together 20 plus years why would i all of a sudden uh have decided to just start sending out my CVs to the corporate and in and amongst that, be lucky enough to have Natalie Massonet say, why don't we meet? You know, so there are these moments, like you say, our luck. And that luck, if it's manifested, maybe that's what it is. But And I still, you know, do a lot of subconscious exercises as much as I can. They don't always work. Uh, and I think for some reason, the older you get, it becomes harder for, it was much easier when I was in my 20s and 30s to manifest, by the way, I find it more difficult now. I think it's a fascinating element 
that I have also experienced. And the way I translate what you're saying, um, another way for the listeners to perhaps grasp it is when founders pitch business ideas and I say to them, hey, you know, why don't we share this with a lot of people I know and see what they think? And the ones that make it and the ones that don't have two very different replies. The ones that I see don't make it say, no, 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 don't share this idea with anybody. I'm scared it's going to get copied. And then there's the people that say, absolutely, let's share this idea, let's make it happen, that actually end up being successful. Because often, if you say your idea out loud, you're manifesting in a way, you're, you're sharing, you're getting, and the people step up and say, I can help you make that happen. Whereas, uh, yes, there is the chance that someone also goes, I'm going to copy that, but then you just have to move faster and it can motivate you. But, but nine times out of ten, people will step up and offer to help you as if you don't ask for help. It's kind of the same point. You don't ask the universe for what you want, then you're not going to get it. So you have to step up and share your idea, take a chance, take a risk, which is, I think, a big part of what you're talking about, and and go out there and make it happen. And what's really weird for me when you say about Oprah Winfrey is I honestly think I've seen Oprah Winfrey interview you. There was a moment in the sound clip where it broke off when you were talking about it. And I actually thought you said Oprah Winfrey had interviewed you. And for some reason, that made total sense to me because I feel like I have seen you on Oprah. And maybe it's a forward projection, but, but um, yeah. may, maybe, maybe I'm meant to be the next Oprah. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're, you're getting yeah. interviewed right now maybe. by Oprah. Right? No crying. Exactly. Maybe it's happening right now. <laughs> right now, right now. But I think that's another thing. I mean, that is another thing to your point about manifestation. And, and you said it in the form of sometimes it doesn't always happen. What I've experienced is sometimes it doesn't always happen in the form that you want it to so I manifested getting into shape for example but actually I got a little bit sick and lost weight and then and then I got better again it's fine but the point I'm trying to say is that ultimately sometimes you manifest something you want to happen right and it can come in a form that you don't necessarily see as what you were asking for but you get the same result right like have you, you've heard that um, that uh, little story where it was like the guy is on you know it's like a passenger ship and it has a hole so it starts to sink and then basically you know the national guards come in they start you know saving everybody and then there's this one guy who's like no I'm not going God's gonna save me and he just sits there waiting there's no uh, God's gonna save me and two days later the boat shows up. Hey, we're here to save you. No, no, it's okay. God's going to save me. Then another day later, the helicopter shows up. Hey, no, it's okay. God's going to save you. So then he drowns. Then he goes to heaven and then he looks at God and says, what happened? I waited. You were supposed to save me. And God says, what are you talking about? I sent you a boat. I sent you a helicopter. What else can I do? Great story. Exactly I love it. Yeah, it's so true. It's so yeah. true. I, I think the, um, the the other thing, I, I mean, just moving through your career a, a little bit more, I want to document your whole story and I've got eight minutes left to do it and we've got quite a lot of your story to cover still. So I've got a feeling we're going to have to have you back on. But um, but so so you're at Nataporte, you're, you're I think member number five uh, of the team. It's of no, course... So I was 11. Oh, you were, 11. you were 11. Sorry. Okay, number 11. Still yeah. still pretty exactly. impressive. Yeah. Pretty impressive. And so you're, you're, you're team member 11 and, and of course it then takes off and I from what I saw again on your LinkedIn, which um, I'm now only getting into what's actually listed on your LinkedIn. So we, we need to update, uh, put some more of your history in there. Um, concierge Days. I think they, I think they need to be listed yeah. on your LinkedIn. But anyway, uh, so so you were there for uh, I, I marked down uh, nearly eight years, right? Yeah, about seven and a, and a bit years. I yeah, think it was, seven, yeah. Two thousand one, two thousand eight, yeah. and and sounds like it was a roller coaster. It was it was an absolute roller coaster. Uh, it was unbelievable. It it was like 
it's like Fantasy Island. You know that movie, that's the TV series where you are just living and experiencing everything. And I keep saying to people, um, you know, it was like the most amazing interactive MBA that you could possibly ask for. So, you know, you're at a time when you're trying to break through, uh, you're trying to create a market at the same time as trying to acquire customers at the same time as trying to sell a new way of shopping to old school brands. So, you know, the, the obstacles in front of us were quite astronomic and you didn't have Google and you didn't have, you know, Shopify, you didn't have anything that was off the shelf that could really propel you. You didn't have social media. You didn't have, you know, community, you didn't have anything. So you really had to build everything on your own from scratch. And it's a very close um, ecosystem, isn't it? It's very competitive, especially yeah. in the luxury space. People aren't going to give you yeah. their brand and make, let you make money off them if they can help it. Right. Exactly. So, that's why I say it was just, there was so many obstacles, but I think where it was incredible was first of all, Natalie Matinee's vision was unwavering. And I think that that is uh, a huge lesson for anybody to learn is, you know, you're absolutely allowed, even in your confidence of what you're doing as an entrepreneur to have that, but you're human. So you're still going to have your ups and downs along the way. Right. So like we were just saying, there'll be the days when you wake up and you're like, you're like, oh my God, this is never going to happen. Nobody likes this. Nobody likes me. You know, what am I doing? And then literally three hours later, you're going, this is amazing. You know, it's going to take off. People really love it. So when I talk about unwavering, I don't, I don't mean that your confidence is finite and absolute because that to me is superhuman or almost psychopathic. I think it's more about the unwavering vision of where you want to get to. And then the journey of getting there, you have to just accept and allow yourself to absorb. Uh, so, yeah, so that was ups and downs. So watching, you know, everything from us trying to build the business, go to the market, the fundraising, the feedback, you know, you know, how do we make money? You know, the evolution, the growth itself was also, you know, not always easy because if you grow an explosive growth, that's also a whole other journey versus in the beginning when things are slow. So, you know, going from almost like, you know, you, you kind of skip a big part of the evolution. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot to it, which means the ability to um, adapt and to be agile. And when you're growing in a company as an, as an entrepreneur, you also have an ability, if you pay attention, by the way, right? Because a lot of us don't pay attention to our own emotions. We're so hard on ourselves as entrepreneurs. I think if you pay attention, what you can see along that journey is the opportunity to say, what kind of person am I in this journey? Where do I add the most value? Where am I really weak and accept the weakness? And then design for yourself what you can do uh, you know, in your own path. So I knew that Net-a-Porter, you know, I knew in year four that Net-a-Porter wasn't going to be the place that I spent the next 50 years. I knew that I already had the bug and I was, in, it was, you know, I was infected, so to speak, and I wanted to go on and do other things and explore and innovate. But along the way, I was super grateful that in my time at that company, I came to recognize absolutely what I was weak at. And my goal, even now, if you ask anybody who at works for me or is in my company, my goal is to be the stupidest person in the room. I want somebody to work me out of my own job because 
I want to learn. And that's the thing that I continue to be curious about. So when people join, and I have, you know, some amazing executives who joined the company recently, uh, when they join, I want them to add value. I, they, I don't have a fear of being uh, outshone or usurped. Now, these are my personal things, you know. So I think recognizing talent in itself is a talent. Um, but when I say I pay attention, I also mean you have to be kind to yourself, which I still struggle with, by the way, right? So it's still an evolution. There's no end to this thing. You know, I have good days. I have bad days. The only thing that I have learned in my 40s is that the sun will come up tomorrow. And if it feels this bad, I now equate it to the first time you had your heartbreak. You think you're never going to survive your first heartbreak. It hurts so much. You're in like, you know, fetus position, crying your eyes out. And it's not that you get, I don't know if the word is stronger, but I say you just get used to it. Maybe it's the other way to look at it. So now you, it's kind of like when you start to get the flu, you recognize the symptoms. So that the next time you get the flu, if you rec- if you don't recognize the symptom, you know instinctively that's different. That's not what it usually feels like when I'm getting ill. So my point is, during this entrepreneurial journey, when you get your 1,000th no, you get used to it. So it becomes a familiar friend and a feeling that you should name, like Bob. And then you go, hey, Bob, how are you today? You know, it's great to see you. But then all of a sudden, three days later, somebody that you don't know named Clive will show up. And then you kind of just have to get used to Clive. So that's why I talk about the evolution and like sort of, I don't know, learning and uh, focusing on how you're feeling so that you can actually embrace it and engage it. It's going to sound crazy, I know. No, it does not sound crazy. And I'm, I'm just sitting here nodding, thinking you don't really need a host for when, when you're talking for this sort of thing. Because it's just what you're saying to me is, is, <laughs> is just so, it resonates so much. And I think for the listeners, I, I, want, I want them to really just grasp what you're talking about there. And I think the couple of things you mentioned there, the seeing the talent being a talent is really important. I think there was a moment when the Zoom let us down for a second, so I'm scared that people missed it. And there was a, you know, you want to be the most stupid person in the room of, in the company that you work for. I mean, I think the whole, there's a joke at the moment. If, you know, you're in, if you're the smartest person in the Zoom, you're in the wrong Zoom. So, yeah. you know, if, 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 and it's that, 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 that philosophy, I think is, is actually on its own super smart. Um, and then, you know, Bob, the heartbreaker, I think, you know, le- learning, learning to get used to Bob, uh, breaking your heart yeah. and, uh, no, no, never gets easy though. Does it? I mean, it's, it's still, yeah. it still hurts when people say no to your idea. Um, and maybe that leads us not nicely. Uh, I, I could unpack, I would love to unpack more around Netaporte. In fact, I feel like we should write a book about, around it. I'm sure there is one there, but maybe you know, for the sake of the fact of getting the rest of your story on record, um, I think we're going to come back to the Netaporte story another day. But then what happened with Fashion yeah. Air? How did that happen? Simon Fuller just kind of so rang you up and said, hey. No, not at all. Oh my God, he was way too busy to even know I existed. Uh, Again, that was sort of, you know, luck, but um, I wanted to look at media as the next space that we could enter as fashion. And I think I was very motivated by things like Sex in the City, where, you know, this kind of moment that fashion was having and the the, the kind of, you know, crossroads between that and, and TV and what we could do with it. So, I thought somebody should do it online and we should focus on short form content, but then it was actually linked to marketplace and affiliate modeling, which to me was the next evolution. So you didn't have to own stocks, which I always had, you know, issues with in general for a variety of reasons. 
Uh, and so it was like, okay, let's do short form content and then create interactive linking, which then would allow you to shop from Netsuporte or Saks Avenue or, you know, Gucci.com. Uh, and at the time, Simon, uh, of his previous successes, was really getting into fashion. So he had acquired 50% of store modeling agency, partnership with Claudia Schiffer. He invested into Roland Murray, Victoria Beckham. It was a foray of things. And he was looking to innovate and experiment around content because that's his background. And I was super lucky that Roland Murray, who is, a, is an old dear friend of mine, uh, said to Simon one day, you should really meet my friend Sojin. She is, you know, always thinking, always coming up with crazy ideas, always, you know, wants to jump in head first. And he organized for us to meet. So we actually sat uh, in the Barclay Hotel in a suite. There was like six of us. And we just ended up brainstorming for hours and hours and hours. Uh, and from like literally one day to the next, he just went, let's go do it. Let's just do it. I'll back it and let's do it. And I went, great. And we did it. Um, wow. And it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, again, I think I think there's another book there. So that I'm, I'm, I think I've got three <laughs> books so far: the early years, the Nita Porto years, and now the Fashion Air. It was two years, right? That was a two-year journey. Yeah, yeah, and that was frustrating, just because I think the timing was wrong. We were way too early. I was going to uh, say when you describe we it now, I'm like, where is that? That that is totally right now, isn't it? That idea. Now, but I think you know the ability to monetize it was probably the most difficult part. I don't. I think that monetization. We got, yeah, exactly. WeWorks has proved that you don't need to be profitable, haven't they? Oh, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> hold on a minute. <laughs> oh my God! Have you heard? Have you listened to the Wondery podcast on WeWork? We crashed. No. If you have, it's yeah. absolutely insane. Plug it. Plug it to my listeners if it's something they should listen to. Yeah. What's What's it called? So Wondery is, uh, you know, this Wondery is this amazing group that do amazing podcasts and you can find it on Apple podcast or Stitcher or anything, but it's called We Crash. We Crash. And it's, I think it's like an eight part uh, podcast specifically on the story of WeWork oh, okay. uh, and Adam Newman. And it just makes you want to cry as an entrepreneur. Cause you know, I can't help but go, if someone gave me that much money, like what I could do with that. And yet you're giving it to someone like him who's more interested in, you know, smoking weed on private planes. <laughs> That's probably why they gave it to him. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. So that's where I'm going wrong. Yeah, you just need to smoke weed and want to go on private jets and then there you go. The uh, soft bank wallet will open up. I'm probably going to get sued now. Not true. None of this is to do with SoftBank. Alleged, alleged, allegedly, allegedly SoftBank invests alleged. in people that like to smoke weed. No, no, no. We can't even say allegedly. I think, I think we're going to get sued. So, so uh, Fashion Air, uh, let's say, um, great experience. Uh, crashed and burned because it's got air in it. I have to use the uh, airplane uh, terminology. Another, oh another, God, yeah. another load of lessons learned. You started investing in startups. I kind of wanted to ask you which one was your favorite, you know, like favorite child. Yeah, so I think the two that I really enjoy also because I am close to the founders are uh, I wanted to get into a bit of sustainability. So I started looking at uh, there's a great uh, baby brand called Baby Mori. And, you know, they're really looking at um, fabrication. You know, they were working with fabrics like bamboo, uh, focusing on the infant market. 
um, originally it started off as a subscription model, so kind of going after the diaper.com uh, space, but then ultimately ended up because it was a bit more difficult into uh, general e-commerce, but it's doing super well, uh, and the founder often uh, now is amazing. And then another brand, which is a uh, terrible, so it's like, so like a shout-out to my uh, investments, but it's called Le Salon, which was actually one of the... Um, you know, at home manicure, pedicure on demand services. Mm. So I was, you know, small, tiny investments, but at the same time, advising them, helping them out. Um, and it was, for me, it was looking at things that were outside of my fashion space, right? Because I, like I said, I always want to learn. And um, also what's important is I always think that if you do the same thing again and again and again, it's not going to innovate. So I'm always asking the question of myself and my team, like, well, like what's the restaurant industry doing? Or, you know, back in the nineties, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but it used to be porn, right? The porn industry was the most innovative industry when it came to technology. So you had to look at other industries and I'm still motivated by other industries because I'm thinking, well, what are they doing? Because why aren't we actually taking best practices and seeing if we can be innovative about, about applying them to our sector instead of assuming that our sector because then it's just biased and it just kind of ends in the same result every single time. So my interest was going more into, you know, little areas that I understood, but actually we're doing different things. Um, and then I was, uh, I took on a gig during that period uh, with Caring Group, which is old Gucci Group. And they I went and specifically uh, worked on an omni-channel uh, sort of strategy for them across their e-commerce and specifically their eyewear uh, division. And during that period while I was doing the consultancy, you know, I'm, I don't know if you know Scott Galloway, but I'm a huge fan of Scott Galloway from um, uh, NYU, Stern. And so, you know, I'd be listening to Scott all the time and we're talking about the, the evolution of, the, you know, at the time he had this amazing sort of video around the, the four henchmen, which were like the Facebook, the Amazon, you know, the Google, those guys, the Apple. And we were looking at where they were going. And I thought, oh my God, this is amazing because I know that Amazon and the trajectory of what Prime is to us and what that means. And it came back to customer service and it came back to convenience. And I was looking at, you know, other people I know, like Will Shu and the trajectory of, um, you know, Deliveroo and then the guys that I knew at ClickUp and Stewart. And I knew a lot of these players. So, and I thought, okay, on demand, right? So that's not going anywhere because that's where it's all going to go. Uh, and convenience being at its core, uh, no doubt, 100%. And it took me back to my you know, original days of localization, trend analysis, concierge, the customer, all the things that I understood innately, uh, fascinated by, also applied you know, in all of my jobs that I've ever had. And then... Ultimately, I thought, you know what? Why is nobody offering on demand with convenience, but because it's fashion service uh, and bringing that industry or that sector into, you know, what we do now? Like, where's the Uber of fashion or where is, I mean, people overuse that line, but so then that uh, led me to Toshi, which is obviously what I'm working on now. So was was I mean I I was you're you're the uh, second founder I've interviewed recently that I kind of want to add to your job title futurist because I think I think you're you're, you're basically predicting what's 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 happening let's say a year ahead from now um, but I, I I agree with you the on demand is just getting stronger and and I think a lot of people um, are still trying to focus on how to revive the high street which just 
astonishes me. But, but um, yeah. you know, and I think the truth is that, um, that people want things on demand. And I think just, just for, for the audience's sake, just quickly explain what Toshi does. I mean, I've read all about it, but in your own words, to perhaps tell everyone what it actually does. Yeah, so it um, bridges the gap between online and offline by extending the product and the store services to the customer's location, but on demand. So that's kind of like the larger strap line. But in effect, it's basically saying, you know, I now reserve the right as an end customer to go on to, let's say, one of our customers is Chanel, which they are. So if you were to be shopping Chanel eyewear, so Chanel.com, now you as an end customer can say, bring me those glasses and then also bring me services, but perform those services in my home, whether that's, you know, uh, just wait and try, bring me other sizes, bring me other, you know, styles, um, or if it was a piece of ready to wear, do a pinning and a fitting. So it's really extending the store services, but to the customer's location. Uh, and obviously you do that because I went to the brands and I said, I've been saying, like activate your stores into mini central warehouses, right? The future of supply chain lies in your ability to uh, optimize that stock at the local level, but also ROI on that rent. Um, and, you know, now with COVID, we are experiencing a surge because this notion of home service has really become, you know, as we predicted it would be a normal way of shopping one day. It would be a third channel. Those who want to go to store, go to store. Those who are living in the middle of nowhere, pure play. But if you are living in a city-centric radius, this notion of you come to me when I want and bring me the products and give me the services at my convenience would just become a normal third channel in the near future. Now with COVID, it's been accelerated. And I really did this because I wanted to democratize this for all consumers, right? Because we all know that if you go to, you know, a Harris or a Netaporte or a Gucci or a Chanel, they offered this level of service to their top tier customers. And my message is, well, this kind of service should be available to anyone who touches your brand, not just your top 100. For your top 100, do that, but then also do more, right? Give them extra, extra wonderful uh, experiences and perks. So I, I really did it also to democratize this ability to say, look, we're just extending uh, fashion into a home service market. It exists for every other commodity, right? Which is last mile, last meter. So it's not just last mile, it's beyond the front door, last meter. So hair, makeup, massage, beauty, all of it has already entered the home. When I read what you were doing, I, a few things go through my mind, I guess, as an entrepreneur, one train of thought, and then as an investor, another train of thought. But the, the, the whole concept to me, I read it and I thought, why aren't they already doing this? And, you know, and I'm sure you had the same thought when you, when you were putting the idea together. And then the second thought, and I just wondered how this played out. Once you start realizing how important what you're doing at Toshi is for luxury in the long term, uh, then you, you realize it's a key element of the business going forward. What doesn't stop them just doing it themselves? You know, why, why haven't they learned from the Net-A-Porte days? You know, don't they hear your idea and go, absolutely good idea. We need to start doing that as a part of our uh, .com service and offer it ourselves. What, what's the barrier to entry? And I'm thinking particularly, someone just asked me about their, their business idea and they wanted to pitch it to a brand, but they're scared that the brand might just do it themselves. How did you navigate that? Um, I think if you have a good business idea, you should do it regardless. Otherwise, you know, 
you know, we wouldn't have Facebook. We'd be still sitting there with MySpace. I mean, you can't. I've still got my MySpace page. You know, we've so never. Don't, don't knock it. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. No, I haven't. I'm joking. <laughs> So, okay, good. I'm glad. I don't even think it's there, right? Is it gone? No, I no, it's, it's I think it got bought um, by, um, yeah, anyway, it's, it's still around, actually. But go on. Sorry, yeah. I distracted you. Sorry. Okay. No, so I, I, I think the, the the concept of this is if you're approach it with the David Goliath mentality, let's look at who actually won that battle, right? And uh, when you create a business, you're creating a business not because you fear competition, but because you really believe that you have you will find your space in that market. I don't think competition is a bad thing because I think what it does is it validates the market. So you're not out there alone, the lone wolf in the desert screaming that this is relevant. Um, I think that if, you know, if, if, if one of these brands decides to do it themselves in the future, it just validates the fact that it's important, right? And it should be a, a part of the, the main kind of knit or net uh, of, of the fashion sector. But um I think the way that we've managed to navigate it is um, I believe it's because myself and my team come with a, a very uh, long arm in the fashion industry. So we understand the nuances of how brands think and work. Uh, I like to think part of it is because we didn't come up with a plug and play tech solution that forces brands to then fit into that. What we've done is come up with a retail solution that addresses their needs, but with technology at its, at its core. And that's a very different approach. So I have had maybe one or two moments in, in those like kind of eye of the store moments as an entrepreneur where I've gone, oh my God, it makes so much sense now why that part of my career and this part of my career have led me to this moment, right? Because I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I can only do this because I earned it by having lived all this other life in, in some way. So, um, so I think that's part of it. Also, you know, logistics supply chain is not a sexy, it, it's not sexy, right? So I think, like we said, uh, when we started as a quarantine, tech wasn't sexy. We used to hide those guys in the basement, right? Kind of in a dark room and lock them away. Now they rule the world. You know, they sit in fishbowls and they sit in, you know, private jets in the first rows of every concert you will ever go to. And on the first page um, of every pitch deck you ever open. Exactly. So, you know, and I'm sure they're the only ones who aren't going through some sort of a pay cut as we speak, right, in COVID. So I think the, the, the thing is tech became sexy and I thought, okay, why not let's go out there and let's, remind people that logistics and supply chain is sexy. It is a funda it is the fundamental veins of where the blood flows. So if the veins are the supply chain and if you know the blood flowing through it is your brand or your product or whatever, the two have to come together. And maybe the fact that we come from the environment we do and we are going to tackle this gives brands uh, ease of mind, so to speak, because they're like, oh, I recognize you. You're of my tribe, however you want to call it. So there's that. Um, I also think that's not what they should be focusing on, right? So if you are there and your goal is to sell a dream and a product and really innovate on the, the, the luxury end of things, I mean, to create a whole logistics arm that deals with home services, that's a whole separate P&L. That's a whole separate investment. So that, that ROI better make sense. You know, If you're going to look at it as a CapEx, that better makes sense for you. And why would you do that? It would be much smarter 
to find a like-minded third party to do it, you know. And if you're smart, you do it with them for a few years. You figure out if it works, if it's worth it. And if all of a sudden Toshi becomes too valuable to you, then, you know, you make a decision uh, what's going to happen. But I think even with that in mind, you know, my biggest kind of fear also as an entrepreneur is I always, I, and I, I try to like, I walk into a room and I'm the person who goes, where's the four exit doors? And so how do I get out? And when I, you know, start a business, I think that way. So even with Toshi, I thought that way, which is I don't want to be that, you know, uh, screen manufacturer that goes bust overnight because Apple decides to, to move on, right? Because that happens. So no one will ever take a monopoly on this on this uh, business because I owe it too much to my investors who have given me their hard-earned cash to not have an exit plan. So I am building assets in the event that I need to sell. I am building assets in the event that all of a sudden in four years' time, one of my brands turns around and says, you are too valuable to me. We're going to do this ourselves. At which point, my asset can become white label, right? It could become a SaaS solution. So I'm always looking for what is that evolution to protect my turf uh, and most importantly to in- protect the investors who, like I said, have given me their hard-earned cash, including my husband. You helped him earn that cash, but that aside, but, but you know what I, mean. <laughs> I do know exactly what you mean. And I, and I think it's really interesting. And one, one of the reasons, again, I love doing this podcast show is because I, I have, you know, I stand on a soapbox and I tell people things like when you're building a business, don't think about exit. But actually, you know, when I listen to what you're saying, I think the way you're thinking is right which is kind of weird as entrepreneurs. I, I find, I find myself sometimes in conflict with my own advice, you know, like it t- makes total sense. Yeah. But, but what I think you're saying, my, my translation to the audience would be, you know, build assets for exit. But what you're really saying is continue to innovate. Really? That's what you're saying. You're saying no matter what's happening. Okay. Today the clients are using us, but tomorrow they won't. So what are we doing to prepare for that day? You know? And, and so yeah. to me, it's not exit per se, it's innovation at a core of what you're doing, which is, it takes you back. And like you said, you spent 20 years, you know, with Chanel 1996 till this moment, understanding and, and doing the legwork and doing the groundwork and doing the research and doing the planning to understand that, you know, innovation is core, isn't it? Yeah, it's core. It's, you have to, you have to pivot. I think, look, when I started that, to, uh, when I started Tochi, my biggest fear, and this is going to maybe, um, hopefully other entrepreneurs will um, resonate, was I was starting a company in an up market. And I thought, my God, I'm about to start a company in a bull market. This doesn't make sense to me. My opportunities will cost more. Uh, you know, the entry to market will be more difficult. People will be slower to move. Um, and if I had it my way, I would have done it in a down market. Well, another, so another big lesson for here people we to are. listen to right now. Yeah, yeah. 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 So here we are now, unknowns to all of us in a down market. Yeah. So my priorities as an entrepreneur right now is take the opportunity that you've been given a down market. First of all, if you're lucky enough to be in that opportunity, which we are, thank God. Also, we're all, you know, we're, we have a business that is relevant to what's happening during this pandemic, thank God. But I've always said, you know, innovation and R&D has got to be a core of anybody's business. The minute you start to believe your own hype, it's the hill you're going on a down trajectory. We have a friend of ours uh, who took a massive, massive job. And when he went into the board for the interview, the reason why I have so much respect for this friend is because 
the dividends were so high. The business was on fire. He didn't really have to do much. He was being brought in and he thought, yeah, I could just sit here and you know, move things around and earn my huge paycheck. And instead he went to the board and he said, I will only take this job if you allow me to take 10% of the bottom line and reinvest it into innovation and PNL because that is going to be the future of where we need to go. And I think that when things are going really well and it's easy to be lazy or easy to be very self-congratulatory, that you forget what put you there in the first place, right? So sometimes having too much money in a raise makes you also lazy, right? So when I raise, I like to raise just enough that I'm still scrambling and hustling. People just don't get this point you're making. It's so important people listen to this. It's so true. So many people think raise as much as you can, but it doesn't necessarily create in, in a innovative mindset and can make you lazy yeah yeah, yeah exactly right. because i always say to people like i have you know as a woman i have various handbags if you give me the biggest handbag i will fill that handbag <laughs> right but if you say sojin your handbag is this small then i really have to think about what i need for the evening if my handbag is this small i know it's a silly analogy but coming from fashion no. that's the way i look at it and i think that's what it is it keeps you disciplined and it keeps you sharp and it keeps you creative because it keeps you hungry. And I think if you can harness a little bit of that fear, that, that, that kind of, you know, wolf is on your tail, then it's a good thing. And when we have these global, you know, G hangout video calls with my team on a weekly basis, I keep saying to them, like, we are running as if there's a fire behind us, right? So that's how we have to be. We can never be lazy. We can never be complacent. Um, yeah, so there, there's all those things. I've completely lost my train of No, I, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't lost your train of thought. And, and it's, it's it, yeah. it kind of, okay, to, to be honest with you, I, I could just talk to you for the next five hours and, and continue just to, to absorb your insights. And I think the way you're articulating things around hunger is, is so important for people to pick up on this. And I, and I love the point, especially in a COVID era where, in fact, this is, the best time to start a business. Most successful businesses that have dominated now, but have been the disruptors before, were started in down markets, right? I mean, Microsoft was in the oil crisis. I mean, there's, there was there was moments in the world when, when like you say, your costs are lower, in fact, because there's opportunity in the market to build it cheaper. Equally, at the same time, the incumbents are misfooted. So there's a chance for you to fill the gap because you can move fast and innovate when, when they can't. And, and your service at Tushy is a good example of that. I mean, it's so needed. It was needed before, but COVID just speeded up that need for a personal touch on the doorstep, right? Which is kind of how I, I perceive your business. You're probably not the best tagline in the world and don't expect you to use it in your marketing. But, but conceptually, you know, it, to me, it's like that should, yeah. when I read what you were doing, I instantly knew that it was going to be a big hit. Uh, but of course, timing is key, a bit like fashion air for you. I mean, that was a great idea. Yeah. There was a timing element, right? Um, and, and, and so it, it's, 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 it's definitely your time. And I, I, and I love the insights. The point about, you know, only taking a job if 10% of the bottom line is reinvested back into innovation. I thought you were going to say 10% of the bottom line is put in my own pocket. And, and the, the, the respect wow. I have for people that think about innovation is a core piece of the business. That's why Apple's done so well, because, you know, after Steve Jobs, the team that came in were about innovation and they weren't about looking at how wonderful they were. As soon as you start, like you said, as soon as you start staring at your own glory, the next thing you know, someone's coming in and taking your, your food. 
you know so yeah. you, you basically got to you got to stay alert exactly. and, and 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 i think you know the, the, the running like you're something behind you is on fire it's probably a good way of thinking for any business um but so many people think that they're not uh, on fire and they sit back and take it easy so so i i got your train of thought i didn't lose it it made me think i want you back on this show please um, in fact, at some point, I think you should be a host or a co-host. You, 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 you have the ability to understand how the startup world works. And I think that helps when, when and trying to translate it and, and share it with people. Because you didn't come necessarily from a startup world, although you might have come from an entrepreneurial family. You started working within the corporate environment. You did your homework and you built up into where you are today. And I think that's a story that a lot of people should hear. So thank you for coming on the show today and sharing it with us. My God, my player. Pleasure. I'm really happy the technology almost held out for us. I've got one question just to close off, um, which I always like to ask just yeah. at the end. Um, you know, if you went back to your younger self, let's say um, you were still in LA, let's go back that far. A few weeks ago, you were still in LA um, and, and uh, you hadn't left yet for New York City. Um, and and you know, what advice would you give to that, 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 that younger you? Nothing wrong with the sounds, folks. Okay, so uh, just thinking. Yeah, no, nothing wrong with it. Sorry, yeah. So um, it's totally personal, right? Is it totally personal? It's totally it's, personal. It's, it's totally whatever like, comes uh, to your mind, you know, and no, no judgment here. Okay, we just, so, we just. Okay. So on a practical level, I would have said, don't bother with college. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said, fly to San Francisco and just start working. I, that, that would have been probably my dream if I could go backwards. Uh, so that's just practical, I think. But very, very importantly, I think, um, I think emotionally, uh, I think having, having a really good team and people you can trust is really important. Um, and I know that not everyone will agree and it's a very controversial topic and I have it a lot with especially my male counterparts but for me as a female having that emotional connectivity uh, with people in my team makes all the difference in uh, also getting the best out of them because people become emotionally invested and I wish I had through that earlier in my careers which is to connect with people uh, beyond a certain level. It doesn't mean you are best friends with everyone, but it just means that um, it, it just means that there's more than just the sort of the professional, um, you know, day-to-day interactions. I think they would have, they would have resulted in, in, I don't know, more, not just for us as individuals, but as companies. So that's exactly. And then, Always keep yourself, no matter what you do, I think the sanity of having a healthy social life is really important uh, um, because, you know, that, that struggle in your mind is real, right? It can be really dark and night, um, and sometimes you need to break that. And there are some entrepreneurs, and I went to the stage where if you think things aren't going well, I throw myself even deeper into it, thinking I can solve it by working harder, by doing more, like, you know, not taking a vacation, not going to a birthday party. And in actuality, it's the most damaging thing you can do because 
like you're talking about opportunity, say yes to those things because actually they're the things that keep it light, the things that remind you, that keep you know, that keep you connected to the rest of the world because really at the end of the end the end of the day there's a bigger world out there and things that are actually more important. So that really helps me even now. So that's the promise I made myself, which was it doesn't matter how busy you are, it doesn't matter what you're trying to achieve. I really value the social aspect of my friends and other things because you don't know who is going to make you laugh. You don't know who's just going to give you the hug that you need at that very moment. Who's going to make an intro to someone that you didn't know they even knew. Um, And it's just good mental, emotional uh, health rather than becoming just a hundred percent obsessed around the day to day of, of, you know, your business. Another set of, brilliant insights there and folks i hope you picked up on it again my my quick translation my my view of what you just said i think there is a whole thesis out there around this concept of the harder you work the luckier you get it is not true it is not true if you stop working go hang out with some friends have a laugh you might have your best idea ever if you just keep slogging away at it Sometimes that can just make the pain worse. You inflict the pain on yourself. I bet what you were saying earlier about being kinder to yourself, Sojin, I think that's the kind of part of what you're talking about there, isn't it? It's like taking that time out. Yeah, because if you do what you just said, I feel like there, it kind of brings about like self-loathing for some reason. Well, yeah, like, like you can't push through the pain. You can't make it happen with your sheer might, right? Yeah, exactly. You're not letting the universe exactly. help you, basically. Uh, you're you're yeah, just assuming exactly. you can push it through, and I and I think this is not, and this is not something you hear enough about. I think so many entrepreneurial chats or things that I've heard of, you know, like work harder, you know, um, and, and no disrespect to people like Gary V, he's he's going to be coming on the show soon, but you know, he'll he'll say work hard, work hard, and it's just sound bites in fairness to him, but those are the sound bites young people hear, and I think what you're saying and why I like to go like. deeper is that. It's not just about work hard. It is also about having fun. It is also about community, as you said earlier, and connecting and health and well-being. And these are the things you really value when you get into your 40s, right? It's not the money you have. It's the relationships you have and the sense of community you have, right? Yeah. I hope every entrepreneur, if they do strive for financial success, because obviously, you know, we all go through that journey. And I'm still at a journey where you know, there's some elements of financial success that I would like to face. I think that's the point, though, is that, you know, I believe that once you've tasted elements of it, it's almost like, okay, I've tasted it, I've done that, I've done, I've done there, you know, been there, done that. And then that's the benefit of age, because the more you taste, the things you decide you like, but then the things that you thought you wanted are not the things you really wanted, and then now you can focus on the things that really matter. Mm. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a real evolution. But I do hope that, you know, the entrepreneurs, it's those that have financial goals and there's always having these, you know, financial goals, um, have a chance to taste what it, what it is that they think they want because I think that that's the thing that will also allow them the freedom to move on and evolve as individuals as well. Because if they don't get there, some, some entrepreneurs get stuck and they can't evolve past it because for them, the monetary achievement becomes the obsession. Yeah, totally right. I mean, I still remember watching an interview, Jeff Bozes was saying that he, I can't say his name right because I'm slightly dyslexic. Jeff 
Bezo said uh, that uh, when he was first declared the richest man in the world and someone said to him, you know, are you excited about having that title? He said, I would prefer to have best dad in the world title, you know, or, or best, uh, best um, brand in the world or most respected entrepreneur in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, being the richest in the world was like not even in his, he didn't care about that. He was quite happy being the second richest, he said, you know, which I thought was very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but look, I, again, I, I would like to have you back on the show uh, a, a, another time, if, if you if you don't mind. But you've already been so generous with your time, and and I, I just want to sum up some of the things I've taken away for the listeners uh, to, to perhaps uh, digest. I think the, um, there's so many elements, but I'm just going to just mention a few. Uh, first of all, I do think this manifest your own luck piece is a, is an interesting insight and something for people to really think about. I think you know, talking about building community, building relationships, caring about your people, investing in people, as, as Sojin has mentioned, is, is so, so true. I love the uh, point about building assets for exit and the innovation point piece, but thinking about you know, the four exits, I think, is how you, you put it. I think that's really interesting and, and so true. I think people need to remember to hire people smarter than themselves. If you can be the dumbest person in the room, to, to use your explanation of it, I think it's a really powerful thing. I've also tried to do the same, and I know exactly what you mean. I think if you can be, you learn so much then, <laughs> um, as yeah. well as, well as frankly, uh, just these smart people come along and, and, and do things with your business that you weren't even able to think about, which, which is really fascinating, exactly. even when you think you're the genius founder. Um, I often end up, and I know you're the same, we feel like we, you know, I'm lucky to have these people in the company, and I, I actually work for them although I'm the founder, you yeah. know, just in the hope that they stay with us and, and, and so on. So your, your insight there, I think, yeah. is, is, is really important. I think staying social and uh, keeping balance, whatever that means for you, but having an, a healthy outlook on life, not pushing so hard and, in fact, doing the opposite when you feel like you should push, maybe that's the time to pull back. Um, I, I like the reminder uh, for anyone out there that vision is key. I think Soji mentioned this around her uh, Net-a-Porte uh, experience that vision is what kept her there so long and vision is what inspired her to, to, to work that business so hard. And I think vision is so overlooked. People often think about what they do and, and, and how they do it, but they forget about purpose and, and, and vision. So, 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 uh, so interesting. And honestly, I could go on and on. So I'll, I'll stop there. But thank you so much, Sojin, for giving us your time. Thank you from both the listeners and myself. I've really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners have done too. And I appreciate your time. Okay. We'll do a Q&A as well a lot of guests will have a lot of questions and so we'll do another q a session uh, in a few weeks time and uh, yeah that, that'll be wonderful to see you again and, and have a deeper conversation about yeah. some of your experiences sounds good thank you so much thank you for having me real privilege thank you so much. Thank, thank you look forward to seeing you on oprah thank you for listening to the good luck club podcast we know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you've chosen us. We, of course, feel lucky. If you want to hear more, please go to thegoodluckpod.com or go to any of our social media pages and share with us your views, your insights and any way that we can improve what we're doing to make it a better experience for you. We wish you the best of luck.